Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Back in John chapter 12, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're focused on John 12, 37 to 43. John 12, 37 to 43. This is the word of the Lord. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and receive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, that we would understand your word, that you would give us faith and your spirit that would cause us to obey your word. Be with us. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So the verses immediately preceding this morning's text, which we looked at uh, last Sunday, are the last recorded words in this gospel uh, to the crowds. In chapter 13, we're going to begin the long discourse Jesus had with his apostles in the upper room. The passage that we're looking at today along with the next section, 45 through 50, act as sort of a transition between the two. They serve as a sort of a side or summary of the effect of the Son of God's work in ministry among the Jews. So what is the Holy Spirit's summary of the work of Jesus among the Jews? In a nutshell, it amounts to the same message as was stated in the first chapter of John's gospel, where it was said he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to them. The Messiah came to the people who wanted the Messiah to come, and they rejected him. They commiserated with their enemies and had him put to death. Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, those who had been entrusted with the very oracles of God, right, to whom belonged the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Messiah according to flesh. 
as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans. The very center of all that glory, the city of Jerusalem, then rejects that Messiah when he comes. The Apostle Paul laments the Jews' hardness of heart. Again in Romans, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to do what? To establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They missed that. They liked establishing their own righteousness. The Jews sought to establish their righteousness in the wrong way. They, as the Apostle Paul did before his conversion, put their confidence in the flesh. They thought they could work in such a way that God would be put in their debt. They thought that outward circumcision of the flesh was the way and not circumcision of the heart. They worked and did not believe. The righteousness of God was in their midst bodily and they chose to work rather than believe. The Messiah worked miracles before their eyes and and their response was not one of faith but just one of, of simple unbelief. Ryle makes an application from this. He says, in estimating the peculiar hardness and unbelief of the Jews at Jerusalem, it is worth remembering that all experience proves that where there is greatest quantity of the form of religion, there is often the greatest proportion of formality and unbelief. The places where men become most familiar with the outside and ceremonial of Christianity are precisely the place where the heart seems to become most hard. The prettier your building, the more difficult it will be for you to believe. The more you boast in your architecture, the harder it will be for faith to exist there. We are so easy idol makers, right? Put up a ceiling like used to be in the Notre Dame and you begin to worship the height of the ceiling. But you're far from God. So living our lives by faith is living our lives by faith. Not by the flesh, not by works, not with things that you can touch and feel with the hands. Living by faith is always under attack by that part of us that wants to just trust in outward formality of things like the Roman Catholic Church serves continually or the Eastern Orthodox Church offers all the time. They have sacraments that have power to infuse grace even when the recipient does not have faith. They have incense and images and and artifice and cathedrals and riches and rituals, and we're tempted by them. We're tempted. We're tempted by them because they seem so, so profound. 
Many of us are tempted to go to those outward things and find our assurance in our works, our assurance, uh, our, our participation and proximity, right? Just being close to old things and ancient things. But dear brothers and sisters, do I have to prove to you that faith in Jesus Christ is that which saves and not your proximity to smells and bells and old things? Faith, ugly, little, old, simple faith. Faith is the substance of Christianity, not the outward. The Jews trusted in the outward. They put confidence in the flesh. And when Jesus came, and when Jesus came preaching faith and justification by faith alone, they preferred the ancient traditions that they had made up. The Apostle Paul liked those outward things too for a large portion of his life. Again, right up until his conversion. And then what was his boast? I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There it is again, little, old, ugly faith, simple faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you see this in the life of Christ? The awaited Messiah came to them and they preferred the shadows to the substance, the outward to the inward, the traditions of men to the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have their temples, right? They would have their temple. And reject the unblemished Lamb of God who is in their midst. Nah, 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 not that sacrifice. We'll, we'll have our temple service as we want it. We'll just have our temple. We'll just be close to the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. Now, don't think you are beyond this kind of tragic swap. Right? It is a constant temptation for us to want... A religion we can see, taste, and feel. Faith is so intangible. Right? We get arrogant and believe that we can do meritorious things in and of ourselves that will commend us to God. But then, you know, we're also lazy. <laughs> so we make those things that we believe will be meritorious to be Hyperinflated little tiny things. I'm nice, we say. I'm nice. God is in my debt. I tithe my dill. God owes me. Right? I'm nice, we say, and hinge our salvation on it. I'm not like other people who are not nice. And we hinge our salvation on it. I'm a hard worker, I'm educated, I'm generous, and it all amounts to a tr most tragic overestimation of ourselves. It's much worse than that, though. 
most of us would make even our vices and sins into that which would commend us to God. My censoriousness is actually discernment. We reason, God owes me. My wandering eye is actually a well-developed sense of aesthetics. Oh, we do these things. We do these things all the time. And if we are not like the Apostle Paul who recognized that all these works, all these outward things are rubbish. They are nothing. They are garbage. We will go along debasing faith and the righteousness that is by faith in Christ. That's what the Jews did. They had eaten the bread he gave them, and instead of putting their faith in him for their salvation, they merely wanted to eat more of that bread physically. Right? This was their sin, their arrogance and self-righteousness led them to reject Jesus Christ. Their sin, their arrogance, their desire to live by the flesh rather than by faith led them to reject Jesus Christ. Now, did you hear that? The rejection of Christ was their sin. And as we see in the upcoming verses, their rejection of Christ was predicted by the prophets many ages before. Verses 38 to 40, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could, what does it say there? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their... He? Who? Who's the he? God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Now, did you hear these words? For this reason, they could not believe. And the blindness of their eyes and the hardness of their hearts is caused by whom? The text says it was caused by God himself. So, is it their sinful unbelief that caused them to reject Christ? Or is it because God hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes? Which one is it? It's a huge question, isn't it? It's a huge question. It's too great for any finite mind to actually really grasp. In answering it, we are attempting, you know, to plumb the depth of the omnipotent God and explain his ways. To answer the question, most come to it and faced with this dilemma between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty over all things that come to pass, they determine to remove God's sovereignty to make man's choices sovereign. This path the Reformed have rejected. It is unbiblical. Then, how have they explained it? Well, they've... How have the Reformed explained this dilemma? Well, they've stuck with Scripture. 
from our finite reasoning, the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility appear incompatible, right? But what does Scripture do with these truths? It simply holds them together. It holds these things together. You're responsible. God causes everything that ever happened to happen. And dear brothers and sisters, we have to live with those things in tension, right? Man is held responsible for his sins, and God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And so these two concepts are even put side to side in many verses. For example, Acts 2 22 to 23, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man is tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you see it? Predetermined plan of God. Godless hands. So how did the crucifixion of Christ come about? God's plan and godless man sinning by nailing him to the cross. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility put side by side. Our Westminster Confession of Faith. You remember if you were attending our Sunday school classes, gets all wordy in their attempt to explain this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, and you're like, how can you yet so that statement? Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Do you see what they are doing there? They are holding together God's sovereignty over all things and the liberty and contingency of second causes, which is just a fancy way of, of saying the real responsibility of man. As soon as you try to relieve the tension between the two, you get either a caricature of God or a bodacious overinflation of the power of man. Deny God's decrees whereby he unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and you make the universe a hellish chaos and man the determiner of his own destiny. Deny man's responsibility and the world becomes a fatalistic nightmare where there is no qualitative difference between committing murder and making love. You understand that. You can't over-affirm one or the other. You go off the rails. They must be held together in tension. So don't try to relieve the tension. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. The Jews rejected Christ by their choice. God sovereignly decreed their choice and is not the author of sin. And then, of course, the inspired word of God in Romans 9 answers the very question we are thinking about, right? So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? 
Who resists those decrees? How, how, how can... On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Oh, man. Do you see in, in that answer that there is no resolution of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He doesn't resolve the tension. He doesn't give you this nuanced, philosophical answer between things. He just says, stop. Stop. You're assaulting God's holiness in asking your questions. You see how that objection, why does he still find fault, is the question in the minds of all those who end up breaking the tension by stealing from God his sovereignty. The Word of God does not resolve the tension. Why would certain folks today and in the history of the church come up with an answer other than the one they are given in this passage? They have. No, we hold these truths in tension just as our passage does. The Jews chose not to believe in Christ, and God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, and they did not choose Christ. Any attempt to go beyond this is to pry into the secret things of God, which Deuteronomy tells us are not ours to pry into. We may pry into God's revealed will, His Word. And what He has revealed is that this, is this, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Responsibility decree. Now moving on from that, we come to the last few verses of the passage we are considering. The Jews rejected Jesus. They persisted. They actually persist in that unbelief to today. Now verse 42, that wasn't the case with all those who had seen Jesus' miracles. Right? Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Many. Even of the rulers believed in, in him. Many saw and believed, the high class and the low class, the unconnected and the connected, the peasants and the rulers, right? They saw Christ's miracles and they recognized the day of their salvation, the day of their visitation. And given that there was a general resistance to spiritual things and a very specific hatred of Jesus Christ, the kindness of God is demonstrated in these conversions, right? In a really wicked and perverse generation, there were still many who, who saw him and believed. Calvin says, a striking instance truly of the grace of God for when ungodliness has once prevailed, it is a sort of universal plague which infects with its contagion every part of the body, right? There are, there are, there are specific times of of hard unbelief in nations. And this certainly was one in Israel. Certain we in this country and largely in the West live in a wicked and perverse generation. There is a general resistance to spiritual things and a specific hatred toward Christ. Have you noticed? No, seriously. And have you noticed? 
That attitude, that posture, that resistance is contagious. There is a spirit of unbelief that leavens the whole lump, and that spirit, that contagion, does make it difficult to confess Christ. Proverbs 29.18, where there is no revelation, the people are unrestrained. Because Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. There is an ethos to each age, and the American ethos right now is one of how would you put it? Self-service? Self-determination? Selfishness? It is the air we breathe, and so you and I don't even know how deeply that self-determinating idea impacts each one of us. We are relentlessly impressionable, and the impression that spreads like a contagion day is certainly not dependence on God and satisfaction in Him. You know, the the impression that spreads today is that we are independent from God and satisfied in this world. It is the love of the world and the hatred of the Father. Hatred of God is everywhere on display. Even even when lip service is paid to Him by speaking of spiritual things. The idea that love toward God would be manifested and displayed by keeping his commandments is considered foolish by most. How many people will go to hell because it was cool, it was not, as the French say, de rigueur, it is out of fashion. How many will go to hell because it is out of fashion to love God? to honor his son, to live as a member of his household. Rather, it's fashionable to self-actualize by throwing off God's yoke and insisting that every other person bow to your own demands. My pronouns are Thus spake Zarathustra. Today's brand of individualism has made every person a tyrant who requires complete submission to his unheard of worldview. Truly, every man does what is right in his own eyes, and any man who points away from the self to God above is is seen as an apostate. blasphemer. So we, we must truly pray for revival, an outpouring of God's Spirit that lays waste to the spiritual malaise that pervades our neighbors and our cities and our country and our nations. We must pray that even given the spiritual malaise, God would grant to many to recognize the cesspool they've been living in and believe in Christ so that from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Even even out of the cesspool, even in that spiritual malaise, there'd be many like out of Israel on that day, many even of rulers who would come to him 
So bad was the spiritual ethos of Israel during Christ's time that we see those who believed in Christ even hiding their faith. But because of the Pharisees, look at the text, because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. That was the punishment that the Pharisees had been threatening for those who followed Jesus. They would be excommunicated, cut off from the people. And the fear that this aroused, particularly by the rulers who believed that Jesus was from God, caused them to hold back, to silence their mouths, to not speak their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Perhaps because of the spiritual climate of our age, we also hold back from confessing Jesus before others. Do you, do you loathe to tell other people about Christ? Do you loathe to tell other pe- people about Christ and his teaching for fear of being branded a bigot, a sexist, a homophobe, an apostate from the religion of self-actualization? a prude, a fuddy-duddy, right? A hater, a science denier, a stupid idiot. Oh, we think we're living out there, but think how often you hold your tongue when God provides you with a perfect opportunity to speak Scripture into a situation at work, in your home, at your family gatherings, right? Anywhere. Anywhere you might be, how many times you're like, boop, scripture, nope. The rulers during Christ's time were fearful of being thrown out of the synagogue. Why? Because they didn't want to lose their place of worship. Not likely. Most likely it was because they did not want to look foolish before others. They had their reputations to think of. And again, that should be convicting to you. How often do I, do we pull our punches, not because we are fearful of being cut off from society or from uh, the church, but because we are fearful of losing whatever respect we have gained within our pagan culture. We just don't want to look like idiots. And so we hold our tongues or nuance our positions to make them respectable, palatable on some level. Calvin writes, it must also, and listen to this, it must also be observed that rulers have less rigor and firmness because ambition almost always reigns them in which is the most slavish of all dispositions. And to express it in a single word, earthly honors may be said to be golden fetters which bind a man so that he cannot perform his duty with freedom. On this account, persons who are placed in a low and mean condition ought to bear their lot with greater patience, for they are at least delivered from many very bad snares. Yet the great and noble... The high, the rulers, the well-connected ought to struggle against their high rank that it may not hinder them from submitting to Christ. 
In other words, whenever we are confronted with a situation where we have to give up our cultural respectability, we are, we are often constrained by our ambition. An ambition that is simply this, we want to be liked. We just want to be liked. Early honors may be said to be golden fetters, Calvin said, which bind a man so that he cannot perform his duty with freedom. Our desire to be liked is our golden fetter that keeps us performing our duty to glorify our Savior Jesus Christ at all times and in all situations. These golden fetters are, as the last verse we are considering this morning says, to love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Ouch. I mean, think about that. What would it have looked like if these rulers who believed in Jesus had loved the approval of God rather than the approval of men? What would it have looked like? They would have confessed Christ. They would have sang His praises. They would have considered the loss of their high positions as rubbish in light of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. They would have given up everything in order to have the, the one pearl of great price. Right? They, they would have considered it a joy to suffer for His name. And they, they just would have, they would have shouted Christ's glory from the rooftops. You remember that statement that martyr Jim Elliot made, right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Right? Those rulers would have given up that which they cannot keep, their power, their respectability among men, for that which they cannot lose, the salvation of their souls. When you put it in that perspective, it's just so... There's, there should be nothing that we aren't willing to give up. Dear people, especially you who are just entering into adulthood, whose approval do you live for? Children, whose approval do you live for? The approval of men or the approval of God? Right? Think about it. Do you care more about what your friends think about you? Then you care about what God thinks about you? Do you care more about please, being pleasing to man or being pleasing to God? Are you going to the gym every day because you're vain and you want respect among your friends? Or are you going to the gym every day because you want to be able to live through your life, a life of suffering as the Apostle Paul did in the pursuit of spreading the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? I imagine the Apostle Paul after several shipwrecks and stonings and going without food and under attack was cut and had to be to do that work. Ask yourself what you are living for, the praise of man or the praise of God. Ask yourself this question, what is more painful for you? Not meeting the expectations of your friends and then hearing their laughter. 
or not meeting the expectations of God who created you and made you for his glory. There's a real battle. This, this is a real battle for all of us, isn't it? Every one of us faces this battle every day. We can look at everything we do and plop it into one of these two categories. Well, that one was done for the approval of man, and that may have been done for the approval of God. That one was the applause of men that I gained, and this one was, I think, the applause of God. What do you want? What motivates you, right? Why do you do what you do? Why will, will, will we go on living in such a way that we aim for the approval of men over and against the approval of our loving Father in heaven? How long will we go on living that way? Again, Calvin on this passage, he says, Can anything be more foolish? Or rather, can anything be more beastly? than to prefer the silly applause of men to the judgment of God. But he declares that all who shrink from the hatred of men when the pure faith ought to be confessed are seized with this kind of madness. And justly for the apostle, in applauding the unshaken steadiness of Moses, says that he remained firm as if he had seen him who is invisible. By these words, he means that when any person has fixed his eyes on God, his heart will be invincible and utterly incapable of being moved. Whence, therefore, comes the effeminacy, which causes us to give way to treacherous hypocrisy, but because at the sight of the world all our senses grow dull. For a true sight of God would instantly chase away all the mists of wealth and honor. One vision of God would chase away all other ambitions, he says. Do you want to have an invincible heart? Invincible. Do you want to be free from being a slave to what other people think about you? Or what you think other people think about you? Confess Christ. Forget about the approval of man. Forget about it and study God's words so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Right? Make it your delight to fulfill the work God gave to you, which is his glory in this life. Love the approval of God and by faith aim for it every bit of every day. Make sure your ambition is directed in the right way. Aim for God's approval. Aim for God's approval. Even if the whole world goes in a different direction, you, each of you, aim for God's approval. You will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed when you stand in the presence of God and you hear him say directly to you, specifically to you, well done, good and faithful slave. Every bit of pain and ridicule you received in this life will have been worth it when you hear your Father in heaven simply say, well done. Child, well done. The approval of man over the approval of God what a disgusting thing that is in my own heart. What a disgusting thing it is 
to all of us. Faith, faith can over, overcome that scourge. Faith. Ryle said, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Let us pray for faith if we would conquer those deadly enemies of, this, of souls, the fear of man and the love of man's praise. And if we have any faith, let us pray for more. Let our daily cry be, Lord, increase our faith. We may easily have too much money or too much worldly prosperity, but we can never have too much faith. 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 Believe those promises. Believe those promises made to you. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ.